All right. Um, I think I'd, I'd like to open it up for just some, if there are any questions about meditation uh, tonight. I just, uh, I, when I'm at Spirit Rock, I, I do that uh, as a matter of course, but I, I don't usually do it here when I'm online. So, but I'd like to just see if there are any questions about meditation itself. And you can um, use the raise hand function um, or um, you could also put something in the chat if you're not comfortable speaking, but a little easier if I see your hand up. All right, um, I'm back. <laughs> um, and uh, so um, for those who uh, have not been here before, I, I often use um, sort of the step of the month as a starting point for, uh, for a talk, uh, not, to, not to really not trying to do a step study or anything like that, uh, but um, but just as sort of a jumping off point. Um, and and so um, June uh, step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. It's uh, you know. The language is uh, got that biblical quality to it, but but I, I think you know what's important about it is that the question of readiness: Are we really ready to change? Are we ready to let go? Um, And the, the kind of the Buddhist corollary to to that, in a sense, is intention. But let me talk a little bit about readiness first of all, and and how um, you know the lack of readiness, the the resistance, the relis resistance to change. You know who who doesn't want their life to be better, right? And, and particularly addicts, you know, it's like I want what I want, kind of thing. And and um, and so you know we have these ideas of things we want, but uh, you know when faced with uh, what's required uh, to get what we want, we're often you know hesitant to to fully engage so the the a teaching on intention which is called right intention part of the eightfold path 
in Buddhism uh, says that the, the first element of right intention of right intention is renunciation, which is let means letting go. So it's it's interesting that this is kind of the key, one of the keys to freedom in Buddhist terms, and it's also the key to recovery. Um, and it, and you know, in order to let go, in order to renounce in that formal language of the Dharma, you know, we have to be willing, we have to be ready to, to, uh, to change. And, and, and so, it, you know, it's interesting to then start to look at the things that, uh, we want versus the things that we are willing to let go of. And, the, and seeing that, I mean, certainly for addicts, you know, the first letting go is the, you know, the big one of the, of the substance or the behavior that we're caught in. And, and of course, for, you know, every one of us goes through a stage of wanting to change but not being willing to let go and and until we you know uh, are able to do that we can't even really get started in this in this process this work the so so there's this sort of starting point of change, of renunciation, is on this behavioral level, right? And and we have to face all the things that we are stuck in behaviorally, and that's enough. You know, that can be enough work, or seemingly can seems like enough work. You know, whether it's the the sugar or the tobacco or the uh, you know pornography or the alcohol, um, you know, all of that, uh, so challenging. And, and we might, you know, let go of one and then find that there's another craving underneath it. Um, you know, I, I'm, as I was thinking about this topic today, I was thinking about the, the things that I haven't I'm not willing to let go of, and just comparing it as I sometimes do to the monastic life, you know, in the uh, Buddhist Theravadan tradition, the monks don't eat food after 12 noon, you know, and that's just what they do. And, you know, I kind of go, um, I don't think I'm willing to do that, you know, and, and there's a lot, you know, a lot of things that they, that they, um, don't do, you know, uh, that I, that as a sort of lay person and a middle-class lay person that I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm not ready to let go of that. And so part to me of this work of the contemplative work around, around intention is to, is to be honest with ourselves about what we are ready to change. Not, you know, cause there's, I was going to say there's nothing worse than, but it's it's not that. I'm sure there's worse things, but there's something really uh, 
troubling, I'll say, about when we sort of lie to ourselves about what we really, what I really want, but we, but do, you know, we don't want it enough to actually do the work. So, so to be honest, like, uh, you know, about where we are. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, mo move somewhere else, we, that we can't progress, but to be honest about where we are. So, so setting intention and having a strong intention around uh, behavioral stuff is, is the starting point of recovery, right? And, and it's more than intention, right? It's, it's the action and, and living that. But fairly soon, once one abandons, as a, another sort of part of the language of, of Dharma, abandoning the unskillful behavior, once that's done, we discover the, the work has in some ways just begun, right? Uh, certainly in the, the 12-step work, that's only the beginning, that's only the first step. There's a great deal more of renunciation that has to happen. You know, when we sit down to meditate, we could say that we are trying to practice renunciation of thought. You know, we're trying to let go of thought. And... Uh, how does that work out? You know, <laughs> kind of. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's difficult. You know, it doesn't just sort of like happen because I want it to. Uh, but uh, you know, the, what we, what I think step six is talking about. Step six and seven, when we start to talk about character defects, we're not talking so much about behavior, although there can be behaviors involved. But we're talking more about habitual mental states and uh, yeah and those mental states can be expressed verbally and be expressed through action but it's the the resentments it's the you know the fears it's the uh clinging to uh of self-view clinging to beliefs about ourselves who we are um, clinging to attitudes uh, you know, what's called uh, views and opinions. You know, this is where the work really deepens and where the renunciation practice, uh, you know, really gets uh, more challenging. Uh, you know, when we start to see, I mean, even in, in the language of addiction that we can see that we, we, uh, are actually addicted to certain thought patterns, to certain beliefs about ourselves. And, you know, uh, when we're active in our addiction, there's this sort of belief that, that that's who we are. Right? Um, and, th and that can be one of the really difficult uh, views to let go of. Like it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to stop drinking, but that means I know I'm no longer a drinker, you know, and that's different from stopping drinking. Now th that's about identity and, and sort of, you know, how do you view 
non-drinkers. You know, for me, non-drinkers were just square, you know, to use really old language. They were really like losers. I like, come on, get a life. You know, you don't drink. Uh, you know, if somebody didn't smoke pot, it was like, oh, they were like some kind of a Republican, you know, not that there's anything wrong with Republicans, but, you know, sort of, yeah, so all these beliefs, right? And, and uh, so that self-view is what, that can be the harder thing to let go of than the behavior itself. And then the attachment to certain feelings, anger, that's one, you know, resentment, judgment, all the things in that constellation can be very appealing because, well, judgment, which is, I think, a, a, a form of, uh, it's a form of aversion, but it's sort of a manifestation of anger. You know, judgment is a way of being better than other people, right? I am judging you. You know, the judge is up here looking down and, you know, passing judgment on others. And that, you know, that feels good, right? Right? Like a lot of things may be going wrong and things may be really messed up. But if I'm like better than you, then I'm good. You know, and that, that ego gratification that comes from that. You know, so we can find ourselves in this kind of cycle of judging. I mean, it's one of the really interesting things to watch when you're on a meditation retreat, to watch how many of your thoughts are about judgments. You know, why is that person sitting like that? Why are they breathing like that? Why are they, you know, they, you know, what are they wearing? Like, don't they know this is a meditation retreat? You're not supposed to wear that on a meditation retreat. You know, all the stories, right? And again, it's just always this, I'm better, that, that's just a, a way of, of putting myself in a better place. You know, so, so this practice asks us to step back a little bit and see that judgment is just a thought. And, and you don't have to judge the judging, which is one of the very typical things that happens. Oh, right. My teacher said not to judge. I'm judging again. What is wrong with me? I'm so judgmental. Oh, wait, I'm judging myself for judging. And, you know, the cycle continues. So it's not a matter of, you know, that, but just seeing, oh, what's happening here is actually not pleasant. Let me just stay on the very basic level of what do I want? I want to feel good. Does it feel good to do this? No, it doesn't. You know, yeah, there's some ego gratification, but how it feels in my body when I am eh, 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 pointing at them, at you, no, it's not pleasant. And so uh, this, is a, this is a letting go on that level. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, whole areas of, of uh, thinking that go on around this, you know, because look at all the ways that we judge our, judge others. And then of course we judge ourselves and that, that becomes really <laughs> talk about a double whammy. It's like, I am judging I, well, okay. How does that work? You know, and, and, and how, how are you going to win? 
in that case you know does that you know because in that case you're not feeling better you're you're feeling worse and and somehow there's this like knower that knows what's wrong that's what's wrong with you and it's that knower happens to be in you like that's a mess so that's a that's a constellation of of uh, thoughts and attachments that are really valuable to it's not that we're going to stop judging uh, minds do that and judgment and discernment important survival you know qualities but just to see it and to notice particularly when it's very sticky or when it's really like uh, got an edge to it that, you know what, I can step back for a moment and just say, maybe, you know, maybe is a good response to judgment. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I was thinking about a couple of other areas, emotional areas, and particularly around, you know, anxiety and, and depression or sadness and how those can become very strong habits and maybe more subtle you know there was a a, a famous Thai forest master um, who said that he preferred students who had a tendency towards anger and judgment and aversion to students who had uh, a tendency towards craving and desire because when people become mindful of what it feels like to be angry and aversive, they want to let it go because it's inherently uncomfortable. But that craving and lust have a kind of uh, energy that can, that, uh, feels stimulating and and you can get be very uh drawn to that stimulation even though if you pay a subtle attention to it or pay attention to it on a subtle level that you will detect its unsatisfactory nature that it's dukkha but it's not as the dukkha isn't as obvious in desire as it is in aversion but the the problem with with anxiety and depression, which I consider to be two sides of the same coin, is that they are um, more uh, embedded in our psyche in a way than the the judgment or aversive stuff. The judgment and aversive stuff tends to come as in in reaction to other stimuli, whereas anxiety and depression have their own sort of, they're like self-created in a way. Uh, and they're more like energies that arise in the mind and body. And so the, the process of letting them go isn't as simple as sort of seeing, oh, as with judgment or anger, oh, I'm just being angry, I'm just judging. Let me breathe and let go of that not be attached to that idea but the these because they tend to be more embedded in the 
both in the body and in the psyche. So they're, you know, they ha have this strong um, uh, um, conditioned uh, state within us. It takes more work to uproot them and, and uh, even to say uproot them maybe isn't quite the right word, but, but to, but to uh, you know, at least reduce their power. And, uh, but again, it, uh, there's a big element here of identity that when we have habitual, when, when we have a tendency toward one or the other of the, of the sides of this coin, then we, be, we can become very identified with them and they become the story. And as soon as something becomes a story, it becomes cyclical. So the feeling arises and the story arises with the feeling. As the, as the story arises, it triggers more of the feeling. So we think, oh, I'm feeling anxiety. Oh, I'm an anxious person. Oh, that makes me feel anxious. Oh, God, I'm so anxious, you know, and, and, and so the cycle goes. And so, so first of all, we have to break through that belief that this is who we are. And, and here's where we can bring in the insights, the key insights of Buddhism into impermanence, suffering, and not self. And, and this is really one of the most valuable, uh, at least meditative and contemplative tools for working with anxiety and depression. And that is to first see its impermanent nature. And that means that we have to watch it uh, and we have to feel it, but we have to also notice when it's not there. When there are moments or space, oh, I'm feeling relaxed right now, I'm not anxious or I feel cheerful right now, I'm not depressed. And just to see, okay, I felt bad this morning, but this afternoon, taking this walk with the dog, I don't feel bad. You know, I could probably make myself feel bad if I you know, worked on it, you know, it wouldn't take much, I'm, it's easy, but right now I'm okay. So key thing, right, impermanence. So that means that the next time you're in the state of anxiety or depression that you can remind yourself, oh, you know what? This is, this is going to pass. This will pass. That thought, as opposed to here I go again, or I am such a, you know, what's wrong with me that I always have these feelings. Tremendously different impact of that thought, right? So this is a reflection on impermanence. We feel that. And then the, the connection then to the, this deeper insight, maybe the deepest insight in Buddhism of how self is constructed. We realize, wow, this is like, I have this idea that this is who I am. And it's, and it's not, you know, <laughs> because if it was who I am or who I was, it would be there all the time. I would just always be in this state. And I realized, oh, that's not me. So this is that disentangling that, 
you know, kind of tearing herself away from that attachment to an idea of who we are and that, that who we are is this particular set of feelings. You know, it's so interesting when, how the tendency to believe that certain mind states are more who we are than other mind states. And that's a great thing to notice for yourself. What are the mind states that are most familiar to me and that I identify as me? Like when I'm in that state, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's Kevin. Yep. Yeah, that's you. Other mind states might seem just very like, oh, whatever. I don't know. There's, there's nothing really special. Nothing. Oh, no, wait. Ooh, this one. That's me. I know you. So that's a belief, a constructed belief. It's not any more true than the mind state that you don't identify with being is you. None of them is you. They're just mind states. They're just moods. They're just states. Um, it's interesting. Even the word state is the wrong word because state is related to the word static and it implies something that doesn't move. So maybe to say mind stages, uh, things that move, that have, that move through different stages. Yeah. So here, Again, we come to this problem of intention and readiness and willingness. Uh, because, again, there's, there can be this core fear of losing yourself, even if what you identify as yourself is painful. You know, you've lived with it for so long, you know. Other people have told you that's who you are. Uh, that's a lot of how we, um, how we come to believe that we are a, a certain way is the things that people tell us when we're young, you know, typically our family members, parents and siblings and others. You know, they, you know that's something I was really aware of when my daughter was growing up, uh, when occasionally an, an, an my wife is a fantastic mother and, you know, God forbid my, if my daughter had had to be raised just by me, she'd be, you know, living in the wild probably. But, but the one thing that I really had trouble with is when she would say something about my daughter, like, you are so, eh. and I would be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to say that. I don't want to tell her that she is something. I try to, you know, this is how you are. I don't, and, you know, and, and sure, we all have patterns and tendencies. Yep. But boy, they get so strengthened in our mind when other people tell us that's who we are, especially when we're young, because we're like, well, we don't know. And then the adult, the authority comes along and says, well, you're really, you know, this, you're really an angry person, or you're very judgmental, or you're, you're very sensitive, or you're, you know, you're very nice, you're very generous, whatever, you know, and, and we go, oh, that's who I am. So hard to let go of those things. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Whitman has that famous line about, I contain multitudes, you know, 
do I contradict myself very well? I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. Uh, let's let's a you know uh, a Buddhist. <laughs> uh, if he had, I mean, I, I know he was exposed to the to more transcendentalism, which was more Hindu, but you know, it's definitely got that that whiff of of Buddhism. I contain multitudes. I think I contain multitudes really should be a Buddhist mantra, you know. Uh, and, and I like that idea more than when you say, oh, no self. Like there's no self. It's like, whoa, I'm going to float away. Like, wait, there's no self. But if I say, oh, there are many selves, well, that comports more with my experience that, you know, one minute I'm this, the next minute I'm that, you know, with you guys, I'm a meditation teacher. This afternoon, I was a golfer. You know, um, you know, I, I'm whatever. I was a a deck washer earlier. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a sleeper. I'm going to start singing. Ste <laughs> what's his name? What's his name? Wow. Really getting old when I can't remember rock stars' names. Uh, but you know, you know, I think uh, at least Catherine knew where, where I was going with that. I saw, I saw the smile. <laughs> yeah, I'm a joker. Anyway, uh, now that I've completely lost the thread, now this idea that we that you know, we contain and we can see that we have all these selves and we can see like some of them are skillful and some of them are unskillful and we try to like foster the skillful ones and let go of the unskillful ones so you know I, this is to me really one of the great challenges of the path which is to really act on and and work at the things that that we really we claim to believe we claim to want you know, and to see what's what's it going to take you know what's it going to take to change you know, um, and again you know there are limits right there are limits um, I mean I guess you know the Buddha and and the sort of the the enlightenment that he talks about is this kind of absolute letting go where there's no clinging no clinging to judgments no clinging to resentments no clinging to a self view uh no clinging to craving to to pleasure you know and you know, it's it's an it's an ideal, uh, and I, and I I think it's a beautiful ideal, and and I think it is attainable, uh, but but most of us won't attain it at least in this lifetime, and you know if there are other lifetimes maybe maybe we can work towards that, but so so this is again the balance. Um, You know, to to see what where our willingness ends, you know, and and is that 
is it enough? You know, there's a, a lovely T-shirt they have at uh, Vajrapani Institute. It's a stick figure of someone in a meditation posture. And it just says underneath, good enough, dear. You know, good enough, dear. I, I, it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's really lovely. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, it has to be good enough. I mean, what it is right now is what it is. So that has to be good enough. That doesn't mean, good enough, dear, doesn't mean I can't seek to be a better dear. Uh, it just it just means that I'm not going to pile on to to what uh, the limits are right now. Um, so um, uh, that feels like enough. Um, you know, it. I, I at the at the same time that I feel like there's a whole lot more that could have, I could kind of go into, but, but I feel like that kind of captured enough of what I, what I wanted to say tonight about intention and about letting go and some of the, some of the layers of work that we're faced with in recovery and in life. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.